Today we begin a new today we begin a new sermon series as we prepare to celebrate Easter. We're going to read we will read John's account of the death and resurrection of Christ. First, some Old Testament background. Our first Bible reading is from Psalm 75 verse 1 to 10, which is on page 835 of the Pew Bibles. Psalm 75 1 to 10, page 835. We praise you, God. We praise you for your name is near. People tell of your wonderful deeds. You say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge with equity when the earth and all its people quake. It is I who hold its pillars firm. To the arrogant, I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak so defiantly. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves. It is God who judges. He brings, down, he brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. As for me, I will declare this forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob, who says, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Well, good morning all. Good to see you. Um, I wonder if you could turn in your Bible to John chapter 18, uh, and this is on page 1541. John chapter 18. Of course, we're, we're continuing on the story of that last evening. Uh, before Jesus was crucified. So you'll remember already that night they've had the Last Supper. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. He's, uh, he's taught them. He's prayed. And we pick up in John chapter 18 and verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And so Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. And this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. And then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. 
They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. And Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Well, friends, this is God's word. Please, uh, please keep your Bible open at John chapter 18. We'll pray. Heavenly Father, as we stop now and think about Jesus and his arrest in the garden, Father, I pray that you will open our eyes to see who Jesus is, who you are, what it means to live in response to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the year 47 BC, the mighty Roman ruler Julius Caesar had just defeated the king of Pontus in a battle and he wrote a letter back to one of his friends. And in the letter, Julius Caesar described his swift, decisive victory in three famous words. Winnie, Widdy, Witchy. Which mean, does anyone know what they mean? I came, I saw, I conquered. Well, in today's passage, we see the true ruler of the world kind of doing the opposite to Julius Caesar. As we look at uh, John chapter 18, we're really going to be looking at verses 1 to 11 today. We're going to see that on this decisive evening of his life, Jesus went, he spoke, and he refused to fight. And we'll think about why. Why did Jesus allow himself to be arrested? And what does this mean for our relationship with God And how should we respond today? So first of all, Jesus went. I remember this this is the evening of the Last Supper. Look with me at verse uh, 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now notice this. Judas, who who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Jesus didn't have to go to that garden on that night. Remember, just a few hours earlier at dinner, Jesus has spoken to Judas and said, Judas, what you're about to do, do quickly. So so Jesus knows that stuff is going to happen tonight. Jesus knows what's coming as he makes his way across that valley and into the garden. And so when we're thinking about Jesus' arrest, this is clearly not your average police operation. I mean, usually a criminal does all that he can to avoid arrest, to stay away from the police, to not go where he knows he will be found. But Jesus goes to this place 
He knows that Judas knows. And okay, in, here in John's Gospel, the story moves pretty quickly. But, but the other Gospels tell us that actually when he got to the garden, he waited there several hours until the soldiers arrived. That's because all along it had been Jesus' plan to hand himself over and die on a cross. I mean, he said that back in uh, chapter 12. Jesus said, now my soul is troubled. I mean, you would be, wouldn't you? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Jesus is very clear that for a long time he has been planning to give himself up. But I guess in a sense, this, this journey across the valley to the garden, this waiting in the garden, is for Jesus a heightened moment of decision. This is where Jesus commits himself to going through with his plan. Because after, after this passage, once by, you know, by the end of our, our reading today, Jesus has been arrested, he's been tied up. For the next few chapters, Jesus is going to be fairly passive. He'll go wherever he gets led. But here at the start of chapter 18, Jesus is still a free agent. He can go wherever he wants. Have you ever decided to do something really difficult? Maybe, maybe there was a time where you decided to leave your job and you talked about it with your family and you, you had it all planned in your mind. So you've decided, it's a plan, but then that time comes where you, you take a deep breath, you knock on the door of the boss's office and your anxiety goes through the roof because as you step through that door, that's when your plan becomes reality. You know that feeling? That's, that's Jesus as he steps into the garden. Or maybe there was a time, where, a time in your life where you decided to ask someone special to go on a date. And you, you, plan, you thought about this for a long time. You, you planned how you'd ask them. Maybe you practiced it in front of a mirror. But then the moment comes. You take a deep breath and you think to yourself... Here goes. Maybe your cheeks go bright red as you come out with it. That's, that's Jesus as he steps into the garden. He's planned to give himself up the whole way through, but this is when the plan becomes real. How interesting that this moment of decision came in a garden. I mean, we've been looking at the start of the human story. Uh, there was a, another world-shaking decision that happened in a garden, wasn't there? Right at the beginning of the Bible, mankind's decision to live apart from God's will happened in a garden. That, that decision brought sin and death to everyone. Whereas this decision... This decision of Jesus, yes, to follow through on God's will, this is going to bring forgiveness and life. And so, 
First point, Jesus went. And that's really significant that he went. And then when, when this big crowd of people come to arrest him, he spoke. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked him, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Verse 6, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, why did they react like that when Jesus spoke? I mean, clearly, clearly they're surprised. Because, I mean, they've, they've turned up with flashing lights and sirens. They're ready for a chase. They're not expecting the wanted man to come and approach them. But I think there's more to this than just surprise. Because look again at verse 6. They drew back and fell to the ground. I mean, we're talking about soldiers here. Soldiers on duty. They're alert and armed. Soldiers don't go falling over every time someone introduces themselves. There seems to be a, a power in Jesus' words. In our English Bible, Jesus says, I am he. And that, that's right, that's what it means. But, but literally, in, in the original Greek Bible, Jesus doesn't use the word he. He just says, I am. I am. Is that familiar? Do, do you remember, back in the Old Testament, there was this time where God appeared to Moses in the desert, in that burning bush. And God said, Moses, here's what I want you to go and do. And Moses says, yeah, but, but what if I go back to my people and I tell everybody, hey, God sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what's his name? What am I supposed to tell them? God's answer. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am is a, is a name that God uses to describe himself. And so as Jesus speaks, he, he shows just a glimpse of his identity and his power. See, see when Jesus is arrested and crucified, it's n- not that he's helpless. It's not that he's a defenseless victim of an unjust system who just can't do anything about it. Jesus could have spoken another word and just blown them all away. But, But apart from this tiny glimpse, Jesus chooses not to. He chooses not to draw on his divine power. Because the decision that Jesus has made is a decision to give himself up and lay down his life. And so this leads us to the third thing that's described in our passage. Jesus came, he spoke, and he refused to fight. I mean, everybody else seems to be expecting a fight. The the chief priests and all them have turned up with a team of armed soldiers Peter has turned up with a sword and Peter decides that this is the time where he needs to save Jesus. 
Uh, when Peter cuts off the guy's ear, well, Peter probably wasn't aiming for the ear, was he? And so Jesus puts a stop to the fight straight away. Verse 11, this is our memory verse. What does Jesus say? Say it with me. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? See, unlike old mate Julius Caesar, Jesus' kingdom does not advance by force. But, but what does Jesus mean when he talks about this cup? Shall I not drink the cup? In the Bible, there's this idea that God gives everyone a cup to drink. Not a literal cup, a, a metaphorical cup. To those who call out to God for rescue, to those who trust in him, he gives the cup of salvation. It's uh, Psalm 16, I will lift up the cup of salvation. Uh, on the other hand, we read Psalm 75 earlier. This is one of the verses that Noah read out. In the hand of the Lord is a cup and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. I mean, in Isaiah, Isaiah 51, Isaiah talks about the cup of God's wrath. So you've got the cup of salvation and the cup of wrath handed over by the Lord. And wrath, wrath is another word for anger. What do you think about that? What, what do you think about the idea that God gets angry? Is that right? Could, could a loving God, a good God, be angry? I recently uh, had a, heard a good illustration that actually helps us think through this idea of God's wrath, God's anger. Um, it goes like this. I want you to imagine that outside um, I noticed that there's a nest of ants. And so I go and get a brick from beside the garden bed and I throw the brick on the nest of ants. Now, that won't achieve very much, but here, here's the question. If I do that, will you be angry? Unless, unless there's any ant lovers here this morning, I don't think you'll mind. Now, imagine that I took that same brick, but I threw it at your pet dog or cat. Will you be angry now? I think the answer is yes. Why? Because you love your pets. Now, parents, imagine I take that same brick and I throw it at one of your children. Would you be angry? I think, I think you would be white hot with anger. I think you would want to put an end to my brick throwing once for all. Why? Why are you so angry? Isn't it because of your deep love for your kids? Can you see that God's anger, it's not the opposite of his love, it's actually an expression of his love. Because how do we treat humans, humans created in his image, humans precious to him? Maybe we don't throw bricks, 
but do we throw insults? Perhaps more? How do we treat his one and only son whom he loves? And so does a loving God have a right to be angry about sin? I think so. God's anger is controlled. It's not irrational anger like yours and mine can often be. Not all anger is good. But it is right for a good, loving God to be angry at sinners. And so what's happening as Jesus allows himself to be arrested and crucified? What's happening is that instead of drinking the cup of salvation that he deserves, Jesus is drinking the cup of wrath that we deserve. It's, it's, it's like each of us have a cup of wrath sitting in front of us. This is, this is what we deserve to drink because of our sins. But it's like Jesus says, here, here, I'll swap you. And the result is that because of Jesus' death, where the Father's anger is poured out on him, then we no longer have to relate to God in fear of his wrath for our sins. And there's this song by Sovereign Grace Music. We haven't, we haven't sung it here yet, but the first verse goes like this. The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. So what's the message of today's passage? Well, maybe we could summarize it like this. The Father sent and the Son went. And we see both of these truths in this passage. You know, sometimes we can... We can misunderstand the cross as either being the Father's idea or Jesus' idea. About 20 years ago, there was an American pastor wrote a very controversial book. And one of the things he said in the book, he said, well, if God wants to forgive us, why doesn't he just do it? How does punishing an innocent person make things better? That sounds like one more injustice in the cosmic equation. It sounds like divine child abuse that's pretty pretty strong language but that's not at all how the bible speaks about the cross god's never described as if he's forcing his son to do something that his son doesn't want to do because what have we read today we've read about jesus the son of god acting as a mature adult willingly following through on a decision that he's had plenty of time to think through. As Jesus himself says, uh, earlier on in John's Gospel, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus chose to take the cup that was reserved for you and for me. 
I mean, we can see this in, in the way the arrest pans out. Je- Jesus says, hey, let these men go. Now, now, if you wanted strict, strict justice, then at the very least, Peter should have been arrested for assaulting an official. But Jesus chooses to hand himself over to judgment in exchange for his disciples' freedom. Why? Because Jesus loves his people. Jesus doesn't want harm to come to them. As Paul said, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so whose decision was it to go to the cross? Well, it was definitely the Son's decision. But, but it wasn't the Son alone. Because the, the other side of it is that in all eternity, just as the Son was willing to go, the Father chose to send him. That's why it's, what does Jesus say? It's the cup that the Father has given me. The Father and Son agree together that the Father will lovingly send and the Son will willingly go. And that's actually important to remember. It's important to remember the Father's part. That, that Jesus loves us, also the Father loves us. I have spoken to Christians who sometimes picture the, the Father as the angry one and Jesus as the nice one. And, and maybe you feel safe praying to Jesus, but you always feel a bit distant or awkward from the Father. Whereas the truth here is that both the Father and the Son Love us. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son because the Father sent and the Son went. And so, how should we respond today? Well, let me suggest three ways. First, decide. I mean, this, this was a moment where Jesus solidified his decision about saving us. And I, I wonder if, if in response there might be some of you here this morning who need to make a, a decision to respond to that. During the week, one of our Bible study members shared about how for many years she, she sort of believed in God, and sort of prayed, and sort of wanted God to be real, but at the same time was sort of terrified by the idea that he might be real. And she told us the story of how one weekend, the message of the cross and the resurrection really came home to her and she recognised in the cross and the resurrection a God of love. And she trusted him. And she decided to commit her life to him. And so what about, what about you? Have you been sort of interested in God and sort of willing to pray and maybe you've had a vague intention of doing what he, he wants? But look at Jesus here. If you recognize a God of love, a God who hates sin, but who loves his people so much that he sent his son to die for our sins, 
you recognize that God, then surely today is the time to say to him, yes. Yes, Jesus, I accept that my cup is yours and your cup is mine. Yes, Jesus, I recognize you as, a, as my Lord, as a good Lord. From today on, I'm going to follow you. So decide. Secondly, let's trust him each day. Jesus cared for his disciples in this stressful moment and he promises to care for you through the stresses and the pressures of your life. He doesn't promise you success and victory like Julius Caesar had success and victory. He promises to be with you. He promises by the mighty power of his word to complete his good purposes in your life. Finally, as Easter approaches and we're we're thinking again about the cross, let's recommit to a life of love. One of the reasons that Jesus gave himself for us is so that we too can learn his ways of self-giving love. As the Father sent him to drink the cup and to bring us life, so the Son has sent us to lovingly pass on the good news of what he did. As we share it, we do it with our swords away. We can't force people to follow him. We can't make it happen by our own strength. But rather, he's, he's sent us to be, to be willing to risk ourselves as we share the message of the cross. He sent us with this loving offer to say, here, here is the cup of salvation offered to you in place of the cup of wrath. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray to you now, thankful that you love us, thankful that your wrath against our sin, which is deserved, but, but that your wrath has been dealt with. We can be at peace in your presence. We come to you through your son Jesus who loves us and we thank you for what he did. Father, please enable us to trust you this week, to be willing to gently but boldly share this good news. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing in response. Um, thinking about this, this passage is all about what he did for us and our number one response is thankfulness. My heart is filled with thankfulness. Thank you.